Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing. Like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. (laughs) well you broke neil (laughs) hello and welcome to witch please a fortnightly podcast about the harry potter world i'm hannah mcgregor and i'm neil barnholden and this week we bring you the first of who knows how many Matt Leave minisodes. The topic of today's minisode is Ask a Guy with a Film Degree. We asked you to tweet questions for our resident film expert, and you came back at us with the most ridiculous pile of nonsense, and we love you so much for it. These are seriously, Neil, I hope you're braced, because these are really <laughs> weird questions, and I'm making you answer most of them. I, I'm excited. I'm so excited. Good. So, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to ask you a question that someone tweeted at us, and you're going to answer it. I might interrupt. Deal? Deal. Okay, but before we do that, I am going to start you off. This is my softball question or hardball question, depending on how much research you did, uh, which is if you have any addendums or issues or additions, which is the same thing as addendums, I think, uh, for our last episode, our film episode, we did all alone without you. Um, actually, I did have a note here that I particularly wanted to thank you for validating my theory about Ginny Weasley. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciated that, actually. <laughs> you know, it's nice to know that uh, my theories are not completely just bonkers. Yep. No, it's- oh, yeah, I guess I was wondering about some clarification about something. Uh, just to be clear. I'm sorry, are you asking me a question? <laughs> I am asking you a question. Word. Yeah, that's right. Putting the system on trial. <laughs> yeah, some real, some real Dumbledore at the ministry going down here. So I'm the ministry in this equation. Yes, you're Cornelius Fudge. Yes. Um, I just, I was just wondering. Uh, it seemed like you were the both of you were suggesting that the adaptation of Order of the Phoenix is kind of where, um, the Columbus and Quaron styles of Harry Potter stabilize. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a compromise between them. And I was thinking of this dialectically, where you start with very pedestrian Harry Potter, and then you go to what you so memorably call viscerally unpleasant Mm -hmm. Harry Potter. And then you hit this point where there's some nice stuff in this movie. It's not distracting, but it's also not just really tedious and straightforward. I was kind of just wondering if that was a fair characterization. Um, Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Um, Because when you look at... The white, the first two are super boring. They make sense, but they're 
unbelievably dull. Yeah. Um, and then the third one makes no sense, but it's very exciting to watch, right? <laughs> like a lot happens. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth one is just a disaster, right? It's like yeah. they're trying to correct. Clearly, they didn't like the direction the Quaron went in. Yeah. And they're trying to correct somehow. But then instead, it's like, it's like a failed balance of the dialectic, right? Where it right. just oscillates wildly back and forth yeah. um, between these extremes within the single film. And then this one, you're right. This one seems to have sort of balanced it out, that it's got, you know, enough of the whimsy, enough of the aesthetic appeal, enough, you know, enough happening to make it actually feel like it's doing something and enough deliberate adaptation choices mm-hmm, to make you mm-hmm. feel like it's actually like aware of the fact that it's a movie. Yeah. Um, where like the first two feel like a little bit like a live reading of the novels. <laughs> 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 I don't think you understand how movies work. They got people who looked like the characters to show up in front of cameras and say that they were the characters. <laughs> yeah, which is like, I get that technically that is how movies work, but but it's sort of like that Sir Ian McKellen episode of Extras, right? Where it's like, you guys are just like on screen just being like, Harry Potter, Harry Potter. Like, I'm not. No, this isn't how movies yeah. go. I just wanted to try to get some of the sound of my cat eating stolen popcorn on mic. Anyway. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Actual live sound effects. Taking this popcorn away, you jerk. I'm, I'm trying really hard to work on my impression of the awe noise that you use. <laughs> it creeps me out. <laughs> Whereas I'm going to work on my night bus impression. Beep, beep. Is it good? It's good. Anyway. Yeah. No, no, no yeah. I, do feel, I, feel, I do feel like the fifth movie sort of figured out a way to to like be a movie and also not be insane um which is like it feels like a low bar but i guess it took a while to get there yeah it took i mean usually most uh series don't actually get four movies to figure out what they're doing here yeah. Yeah. so yeah it's pretty impressive <laughs> any anything else anything we said that seemed uh patently wrong to you <laughs> Would you tell me if there was anything? Just tell me something that you noticed when watching this movie last night that we wouldn't have noticed. Uh, I did notice there's a lot of off-center frame compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, there's this, the scene where Harry and Sirius are talking and they're beside the Black family tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither of them are actually in the center of the frame. And typically, when you have someone who's not in the center of the frame, you expect someone to come in to fill that space. But what's funny is, so there's actually a doorway, an empty doorway behind Harry, and sure enough, Hermione just suddenly pops up there. And I thought, that was clever, because we spent a few minutes with there being no reason for the camera to be pointed there. And then Hermione all of a sudden, so she becomes more of a focus of the shot. All right, are you ready for the first question? Yes. So this question comes... I'm turning this away from you. You're not allowed to see the questions anymore. This question comes to us from uh, Mystic Warrior, um, who is pointing out that she finds that she often has a lot of trouble identifying with male characters Mm -hmm. in movies. And that the movies, the characters that she feels the strongest identification with are almost always women. And she was wondering if you have a similar experience that you find that you tend to identify with male characters um, or if there are female characters that you identify strongly with in films? That's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the fact that I offhandedly have a hard time thinking of an example of a female character who I do identify strongly with probably says a lot, although since, as the Bechdel test has established, the vast majority of films are about men anyway, mm-hmm. that's maybe not too startling. No, I actually, I think I would find it exceptional to identify strongly with a female character. I know that it has happened, but I think it's fairly rare for it to happen. And I mean, you know, part of that is just down to me, but I think, yeah, films, I mean, one of the side effects of having most of the characters who say anything in a film be men is that I I do think it's a bit of an uphill battle, actually. I mean, Harry Potter has an unusual number of interesting female characters, even in the movies, and still... Still, when I read the book of Order of the Phoenix, I actually identify strongly with Cho, strangely. 
because I often feel ambivalent about my own emotions and I sort of go back and forth about things. And I really appreciate that the character of Cho, I think is handled really well because it's not that she is confusing two other characters. And in fact, Hermione really accurately, I mean, sort of projects her own feelings of ambivalence onto Cho, but I think she accurately describes what it's like to, you know, she's upset about Cedric, but she also likes Harry, but she also has other feelings about things. So I actually identify with her in the books, but in the movies, that's very, very underplayed. And the fact that Cho becomes the one who uh, reveals Dumbledore's army to Umbridge in the movie is is pretty troubling. I don't think she deserves that. I mean, and then and then it's kind of you know it's because of a spell. It's not. I mean, in the in the book, it's uh, a character who I can't remember at all, and I really hope isn't an important character who betrays them. Right? She's not. No, she's she's Cho's friend. She's another Ravenclaw, and she's not really a character we know much about, except that her mother works for the Ministry. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and that's oh, how it's set up for us. Yeah, no, I actually, I, I, I was, I, uh, in terms of female characters in the books, I do mm-hmm. distinctly remember that when reading mm-hmm. Order of the Phoenix, which I read the, I stayed up all night the day after it was released. Yeah, it was my fir- the first experience that I remember of uh, staying up all night to read a book. Yeah. I do remember that actually strongly. I, I'm sorry to say that I just don't identify with Hermione. Because the thing is, she kind of knows what she's doing most of the time, and I cannot uh... relate. I can't relate. I mean, she doesn't know what she's doing. She just thinks she knows what she's doing Can't all the time. So I identify very strongly with Hermione <laughs> as myself, a super duper bossy woman. I really like her. And I never, I never identified with Cho. I found her really like, like, make up your fucking mind, woman. Um, but that makes sense. You know, what? actually, we had a listener say that they wish we talked about Cho in the books more. Mm, because mm. I think both Marcel and I are like, ugh, Cho. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she's actually, she's actually a, I see now, a character who has many interesting, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotional nuance in her as a character. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, this is more a point about the book Order of the Phoenix, but I think it's really to J.K. Rowling's credit that she has the ambivalent love interest who is very clearly to me at least, who is portrayed um, quite thoughtfully mm-hmm. and sensitively. It's not, and I think that's why there's that scene of Hermione um, telling Harry and Ron, you know, well, clearly this is what Cho is feeling. That's why she can't make up her mind about things. She's not mm-hmm. just some kind of indecisive person. So I, I actually yeah. quite like that. And as someone who second guesses everything, every decision I've ever made, I find that comforting and I like how that was handled. <laughs> Next important question. This one's from Karina Soros. Karina wants to know, what's your favorite movie portrayal of a dragon and why? And she specified, not just within the Harry Potter series, all dragons ever. All movies about dragons. Huh. Hmm. There's so many dragons now that I think about them, you know? There's, like, there's goofy old Pete's dragon, you know, the imaginary cartoon dragon. There's the heart-stopping tragedy of Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, All the way up to just, like, Smaug, who's kind of a smoothie. (sighs) That character from The NeverEnding Story probably doesn't count as a dragon, right? I just had that conversation with Claire today. We were talking about (laughs) cinematic dragons. And I was like, and we were naming different ones. And I was like, oh, yeah, what about the one never ending story? And she was like, is that a dragon? No, I was having this conversation with Trevor, our erstwhile tech support. He was like, is that a dragon? And I was like, ah, pretty sure it's a dragon. But really, it's a big white flying dog. Yeah. Really. But it's, so why do we both have the impression it's a dragon? Well, I, it has many dragon-like qualities in terms of being a sort of serpentine being that flies around and has a beard. And I don't know, not all dragons have beards. Let's get real here. His name is Falcor. Falcor. I mean, Falcor is pretty great, but he may be more of a dog. Oh, he's called Falcor the Luck Dragon. Oh, Marcel's oh. going to be super mad because we're doing research right now. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only luck dragon to appear, although five others are mentioned in passing. 
You know what? You're evading the question. You may include Falcor if he is your favorite question, your favorite dragon, but Damn. you still, you still Damn. need to tell us. I also feel like this is going to be one of those things where on my way home tonight, I'm going to suddenly remember that there is a beloved dragon who had a formative effect on me um, when I was too young to remember. Um, Just to take the pressure off, um, everybody on Twitter had a really strong opinion about this and is going to be mad at you no matter what you choose. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all dragons are pretty great. (laughs) Hmm. I am actually going to say Puff the Magic Dragon, though, in the end, because I think he's the Ur-Friend Dragon. I'm getting, I'm getting teary now. Um, Two questions in. It happens. I think mine might be uh, Dragonheart, Sean Connery Dragon. Oh, good dragon. Yeah. Good dragon yeah. choice. Yeah. Next question. This is from Nemel's Winter. Uh, If you could pick any director from film history to remake one of the Harry Potter films, which director and which film? Whoa. I know, right? Just as a side note, like, I assumed that people were going to ask questions about, like, film production or, like, like, adaptation or... Like, (laughs) the questions very strongly went into, like, let's learn more about Neil. (laughs) And I am delighted with that. It suggests that our listeners are very curious about, just about your opinions about things. So we're thinking about, okay, so what what film director? Hmm. I'm trying to think, too, of who would be most interesting. I was thinking, um, today is the birthday of Jacques Tourneur. Uh, a director who did a lot of really good horror movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's Jacques Turner's birthday, which you should all know already. Um, <laughs> I mean, they don't know what day we're recording. <laughs> well, that's no excuse. <laughs> it's the 316th day of the year. <laughs> Fools. <laughs> Obviously. Do you remember that, um, that old animated uh, adaptation of The Hobbit? Yeah. Right? Yeah, Don, Don Bluth. Yeah, I was just thinking. He, he'd probably do a really interesting movie. Like, I would love to see a Harry Potter, like, with that animation style. Yeah. With that kind of, like, because that animation's, like, it's a little sinister. It's a very particular aesthetic. It, it, it feels, in a lot of ways, like The Last Unicorn, right? Yeah. Which is, like, these supposed children's movies that are animated and have soundtracks and are based on kids' books, but have a very adult feel to them that that partially comes with the way they've been animated like that version of harry potter would be wild yeah it's it's tempting to think also of directors where it would alter the style of harry potter so much i mean like a a a silent version of harry potter would be fascinating Mm -hmm. just to see what that would look like and how that would work Actually, I was thinking about this in the previous episode when you mentioned your fervent desire to see an HBO series of Harry Potter, which I think when you said that, I thought I've been thinking about this subconsciously forever, apparently. (laughs) I think it's going to be really fascinating when the next adaptation of Harry Potter is made, whatever it is, because eventually it's going to happen, however it happens. And I think... I mean, this is a total cop-out answer to this question, but Harry Potter is a story that I would be interested to see almost anyone make a version of. Yeah. I also just want to say, since in the past, somehow asking for fan art has worked, if anybody wants to make some Harry Potter fan art in the style of The Last Unicorn, I will look at that. Okay, J.D. Meltzer asks, given the success of the expanded universe concept that Marvel has been using, um, do you think that if Harry Potter is being adapted right now, they would do it differently? Yeah, so you, you have a you you have a major storyline, but there's also a series of movies that you sorry, there's also a series of movies <laughs> that you can uh, that stand on their own more or less, but there's also this kind of ongoing mm-hmm. plot line. I, I wonder about that. Um I mean, for one thing that is happening, I mean, they're making another trilogy of movies. Well, I mean, my, my point is, I think I think they would be fools to not make as many Harry Potter movies as they can. 
But I, I think they're maybe bound a little bit differently than by Marvel, which already has a vast, vast set of stories that are interrelated. Um, I mean, sadly, in the end, I think it would probably just come down to a business decision. If Warner Brothers thought that people would go see a Hermione movie, I'm sure that they would make it. I'm mm -hmm. sure that right now in our real universe, mm -hmm. someone has proposed that idea to someone. Would this be a good time for you to tell us some things about how film production works? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, one thing that I think, uh, one one piece of evidence, if you will, that I would like to put before the court of which, please, uh, is uh, the global reach of Harry Potter, actually, because um, basically no one makes blockbuster movies except for the international market now. We sort of, about 20 years ago or so, passed the point where movies could be where it was smart to invest in movies that would not succeed internationally, blockbuster-wise. I mean, there's a different rule for, you know, smaller movies. So Harry Potter movies exist because Warner Brothers is under the impression that people all over the world will go and see Harry Potter movies, which I think is interesting. I don't know a lot about the book, the book publishing mm -hmm. uh, world, but I sort of imagine that books cost a little bit less to create. <laughs> yes. you know less than 150 million dollars which i think is pretty much what all the harry potter movies cost so i i i mean it, it's it's easy to forget because i think when you look at these movies they're not obviously geared towards a global audience i mean it's quite easy to point at uh you know the mummy tomb of the dragon emperor and say well that's that's a co-production between the u.s and china and it takes place in china and there are these characters who are sort of very obviously intended to make the film more appealing to an international audience in that case like a really obvious international audience um but yeah I, I just think that's something interesting because that that is honestly why people make blockbusters now and when blockbusters succeed it's because of that it's because people outside of north america go to see them and it, and i don't mean the uk or even the commonwealth asia right mostly. yeah i most, mostly mean asia mostly india and china actually um so I, I think the the movies really represent a moment where it becomes really, really global. Because as I say, there wouldn't be movies if Warner Brothers didn't think, if Warner Brothers didn't know or have good reason to know that people in China or in India would go see them. So I, I just think that's something quite interesting because there's nothing... There's nothing that I can see, you know, textually in the movies that's as pandering as something like Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which is not a good movie, so don't go see it. Um, <laughs> but but you, you know what I mean? So there's kind of just an aspect to it that I think is really interesting. And I was wondering if Witch Please would ever get around to looking at something like the spurious Harry Potter sequels that were popular in China for a while. Before the last book had come out, people were were writing in Chinese Harry Potter books that were sequels, and they, they were having them published right, <laughs> as the new Harry Potter book. Um, I was aware. I was aware that the market for films now was primarily international, and in fact that to get a blockbuster funded, you needed to be catering to almost more to the international audience, right? I think you make more in yeah, China and India than you do in the U.S. Yeah, um, most most movies are, are a successful blockbusters, I think, usually make about a, probably about a third of their money in, in mm -hmm. the domestic market, which humorously is Canada and the United States, mm -hmm. because for the purposes of the international film market, Canada is a suburb of L.A., I don't think the book industry works the same way, though book publishers are primarily international, multinational conglomerates at this point. But books are still sort of published in one particular language, and it's only after their publication that they are then translated. Though my guess is that Harry Potter's books, as they were coming out, were probably translated pretty quickly, and or that major presses have sort of pre-standing translation deals set up, right? Yeah. I just tried to really quickly Google um, what kind of advances Rowling was getting for the 6th oh, and 7th, because that's the thing with celeb, like when you talk about cost of production, mm -hmm. right? What we're talking, the the big sunk cost is um, publicity, right? right? Promotion of the right. new book and, you know, advances yeah. for authors. Um, and my guess is that Rowling was getting pretty fucking huge advances for those final books, knowing how they sold. Yeah. Um, 
and knowing that she is, you know, a billionaire. Oh, God. Um, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. And I, I guess my question in com- in comparing books and movies would be, I mean, as I say, my sense is that because films work by investment mm-hmm. in a presumed future profit. Mm-hmm. and But I, I guess my point is that if someone writes a book and it doesn't seem likely to succeed except in a narrow market, the book has still been written. Mm-hmm. Whereas movies don't get made at all unless someone mm-hmm. thinks. So I, I'm I'm just kind of thinking if there's if there's a contrast there because my sense would be that Harry Potter fundamentally is very different because of its global success mm-hmm. than it would be otherwise. But it's it doesn't exist in the first place yeah. because of the existence of a global market. Whereas the movies that's the reason they exist yeah yeah that's very interesting actually we're getting so material on this one (laughs) oh that was me uh because there's an adorable cat alan matley's question he wanted to know if you think that the harry potter movies are culturally specific to britain he wants to know if you think that there's anything actually particularly british about them as films beyond the nationality of most of their cast Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, everything I was just saying would lead me to say, no, absolutely not. They're they're, um, American corporations using British resources in order to make a profit, mostly in Asia. (laughs) Um, Because that's the postmodern world we live in. Um, But I mean, at at the same time, I do think... Uh, I think there can be an excessive focus on the material productions of these texts because there's a lot about them that is, I mean, there's a lot about them that's otherwise inexplicable. Like you can't explain it by referring it to, oh, that's why Hollywood makes these movies. I mean, it's, it's so easy to say, you know, that we get big franchises because Hollywood knows it can sell them or because whatever, but there are plenty of things that don't become franchises or don't work as franchises. So it's a little reductionist. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think I would say that they might actually be very British, uh, culturally specific to Britain actually, but it's mediated by an extremely global context, I would say. And I think they, they arise out of a context that is very, national very national i would assume that jk rowling was not imagining you know what will people in asia think of this yeah when she made a villain who's basically margaret thatcher yeah i mean that that reference is so so specific (laughs) or not i mean it's not like that's I mean, yeah. but it's not in British literature, right? No, in no, British no, literature and film, making somebody a Margaret Thatcher reference is like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we get it. Yeah, and I, I think it, even if you think about other Anglophone contexts, yeah, I don't, I don't think in the United States or even Canada, you're immediately as invested in a sort of caricature of Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I do think that they their Britishness is important, I think. I mean, I think there's a reason why why they are so steeped in these British images and cultural traditions. It is very difficult to imagine a Harry Potter that wasn't filmed in the UK. How much of it is the films being steeped in a sort of, you know, British cinematic or cultural tradition? And how much of it is the fetishization or commodification of an identifiable form of British culture for the sake of a global audience? are already invested in the Britishness of the book series and that being part of the charm. That's actually, that's a really good point too, that I think um, you and Marcel mentioned in, in passing that in one of the movies, the characters start to wear contemporary clothing Mm -hmm. in Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a quite a telling moment if you think about it, because previous to that point, they've been dressed in British public school outfits, right? Or private school. I I can't remember. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I wonder if the movies, the way in which they are British is actually determined by that context. Not being British myself, I would have a hard time seeing that. But it makes me think about, um, I can't remember where this comment originated, but Marcel was talking about it, about um, a viewer or reader of Harry Potter who finds stories set in the United Kingdom to be more fantastical. (laughs) (laughs) 
somebody who worked at Audrey's bookstore who said that she wants to buy the British versions of Harry Potter because there's more magic in them. Well, that that is nowhere near as useful to the point I was making as I thought it was. But I think think there's something there, right? I mean, I, I do think that, to be really honest, I would be shocked if any of the Harry Potter movies made enough money in Britain to justify any further Harry Potter movies being made. That I there's no easy way to sum up the answer to that question. They might be more British or British in an exaggerated way, precisely because I don't think they're British. Mm-hmm. So there's things in them that are drawn out of British culture, but I think are largely mediated by non-British people f- with a non-British audience in mind, which is maybe why it's noticeable when they are suddenly not wearing robes and they're just dressed as contemporary uh, Westerners, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and not even in a particularly twee or British fashion, right? Oh. Just like sweaters and jeans. <laughs> just like yeah. just like real real generic. Or, I I do have to say that also in the Order of the Phoenix, when Harry first goes uh to Grimold Place and <laughs> Ron and Hermione. He go, he goes up to the the room where Ron and Hermione are, and they're both wearing these bizarre striped polo shirts. And then, then the twins appear, and they're also both wearing striped polo shirts. It's a bizarre detail. Where I actually think there's probably uh, costuming people who work really hard to make sure that everyone in a given scene isn't wearing minute variations of the same outfit. So I sure hope somebody got fired over that blunder. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Proletarian Arts wants to know, how do you envision a futuristic Hogwarts in space? In space. Huh. The relationship between science fiction and fantasy is really troubling, right? I mean, there are these genres that are... They're genres that have a lot culturally invested in being totally inimical to each other, but they're actually almost the same genre wearing a funny mustache. (laughs) Which one's wearing the funny mustache? I leave that for you to decide, dear listener. (laughs) Well, you you know, I mean, just that it's, it's... you know, it's mostly just about the different vocabularies or verbal kind of or in film visual uh, cues that people used to refer to it. So I'm just trying to think, I mean, there are, I mean, really, Andrea isn't Starfleet Academy Hogwarts in space. I mean, I know it's in San Francisco, but it's in the future. It's, I mean, San Francisco is in space, technically. Oh, God. Is Ender's Game Hogwarts in space? Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I actually think the the DC Comics series Legion of Superheroes is probably really close to being um, Hogwarts in space Mm -hmm. because they all have different superpowers, but they exist in a future where superpowers are sort of normalized in a strange way. So you have superpowers just because you come from another planet, right? So I, I wonder if that's kind of the closest thing that exists, but to a futuristic Hogwarts in space. <laughs> no, it, but I actually think, I think that's a good question because I think it's, it's hard. I think there's a lot culturally making it hard to imagine how science fiction and fantasy are, could be the same text. Mm. Um, because you think even, even texts that are on the fantastical side of science fiction don't usually have an actual, magic taking place in them that's oh that's a really good question i mean i guess we'll have to wait and see until we live in the future and someone (laughs) makes hogwarts set in the present right but then it won't be science fiction that's this is confusing (laughs) i think what she really wanted to know is would it be exactly the same except everybody's wearing silver jumpsuits (laughs) yeah i i actually 
totally on point with the previous point we were making. Mm-hmm. Silver jumpsuits are absolutely the uh, American science fiction equivalent of British robes, uh, as robes are in British fantasy. Mm-hmm. I would say those are actually almost exactly the same thing. Do you know anything about where the visual trope of the silver jumpsuit in space comes from? Like, because that's nonsense. Like, robes make sense because robes are, <laughs> like, wizards are affiliated with scholars, right? And yeah, scholars actually yeah. wore robes. Um, and we've got, you know, church elders wearing robes. Like, so there's a sort of iconography that comes from a particular history there. Like, right. yeah, silver jumpsuits. <laughs> well, but I, but I actually think it probably comes from the opposite thing, which is an overdetermined effort to create clothing that doesn't look like anything anyone wears. Mm. It's probably the exact inversion. I feel like it probably comes from uh, pulp magazines, though. Mm-hmm. So, ironically, we are missing the one coven member who could shed light on this. I know that uh, something like a movie like H.G. Wells's Things to Come from 1936 was really influential in terms of what science fiction looks like now. And it was basically created by... Um, a film producer who just wanted everything to look as futuristic as possible. So they just hired modernists to design things and just basically just have a blank check to go wild with what people would look like. So I think it's actually, it's purposefully totally unrealistic and not at all what people were wearing in the pre-war period or in the fifties or whatever. Thanks for that clarification, Neil, because I thought in the fifties, everybody's walking around in silver jumpsuits. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, you know I don't know if you've looked at uh, the fifties lately, but uh, no. Neil's in so much trouble right now. <laughs> All right, our final question comes from our very own Cosminator. She asks, "I'm going to read both her tweets together because it's a coherent single question." Why, for the love of all that is holy, do people still think Citizen Kane is a good movie? <laughs> Follow-up. Is Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix a better film than Citizen Kane? Why or why not? Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. The, the thing about Citizen Kane is that it's basically the Hamlet of movies. It's literally the first movie that I watched in my film degree, which I have. I, I don't know what Marcel's experience with it is, but I don't think anyone really asserts that it's a good movie based on what happens in it, based on the plot of Citizen Kane. I mean, I, maybe there are people who are just excited to find out that uh, powerful, wealthy dudes can also be really miserable. Um, It's mostly because the way it's made, uh, it has not exactly technical innovations, but it brings together a lot of innovative trends and pushes a lot of them together in terms of filmmaking of the time. Uh, I mean, the short answer to this is that if you watch any 10 other movies that were made in 1941, you'll probably figure out why people like Citizen Kane. (laughs) Um, But I, I also think it, much like Hamlet, it is also a text that supports a certain understanding of what is good about film. So for example, for quite a lot of time, the quality of Citizen Kane was attributed um, almost entirely to Orson Welles, the director, which plays very neatly into the theory of film watching that ascribes all meaning uh, to the director, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So then people sort of inconveniently pointed out that actually other people had made contributions and whatnot. Um, (laughs) Actually, the the best thing that I ever read about how movies actually work is that you should think of them as works of art in the same way that cathedrals are works of art, where you don't really know who did anything. Mm -hmm. And it's not really that someone made a cathedral, right? Um, Yeah, okay, so this is kind of rambling, but yeah, I think that's what people like about it. So um, the the way that film... Real quick, so that means I can judge people when they say they like it? I think if people tell you that they like the movie, you should be deeply, deeply suspicious of why they're saying that. Um, I think, like, I enjoy watching Citizen Kane, but I wouldn't tell you that it's one of my favorite movies. I wouldn't, if someone was saying, what's a good movie to watch? I wouldn't say, watch Citizen Kane. Um, I think, the and as I say, it's the first movie that I watched in film school. I think for a lot of people, it's the first movie they watched in film school. But that's because it's also a good text to say, okay, here's how deep focus works. 
its use of deep focus is really innovative. It uses it in terms of the story uh, really interestingly. It's not like it invented those things. It just is a really good example of those things coming together and being innovative. Yeah, it's it's basically highly, highly teachable. Because I would also say that the thing is, um, nobody has... It, like, mass audiences have never liked Citizen Kane. It was never popular. And... But that's a perfect justification for a bunch of douchey guys with film degrees to love it. Oh, yeah. Not... Present company excluded, obviously. No, no, no. Uh, like, absolutely. That's a really <laughs> good reason. But I, I think um, uh, when it came... Like, even uh, even Orson Welles said that the plotline of it is just basically some really cheap psychology. Borges, I want to say, said that it was the, it's exactly the kind of movie that people are going to talk about forever, but nobody's ever really going to just be like, let's watch this all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess, like, it, this is kind of uh, punting, but I think there's there's structural reasons why people would say that. There's cultural reasons why people would say that. You should definitely be suspicious of why people say that. But at the same time, historically, there are reasons to look at it and watch it. And there, I mean, there are reasons why it's one of the two movies from the 1940s that anyone's ever heard of now. Right. Yeah. Second part of the question is Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix better than citizen Kane. Oh man. That that really depends what you mean by better. I mean, it's, it depends what you mean by better. (laughs) I mean, it's nowhere near as interesting relative to movies that exist. You would never point at Order of the Phoenix and say that it was doing something innovative mm-hmm. or particularly different than other movies. It's probably more enjoyable to watch now. I mean, I guess you could meaninglessly try to figure out if it, if it's more enjoyable to watch now than Citizen Kane was to watch in the 1940s. But I actually think you'd probably find that mm, it's... I mean, Order of the Phoenix is considerably more popular. More people want to see Order of the Phoenix. That's a hard question. I mean, I will also say... It's also a totally absurd question, and I really appreciate how seriously you're taking it. I'm really, like, trying to answer this. I think that I would say that Citizen Kane is a better movie in the end because it's a much weirder movie. It has a lot of really weird, weird things in it. And also, I think it doesn't fully add up. I guess what I'm saying is I think there's more room to interpret Citizen Kane than Order of the Phoenix. That doesn't mean it's more enjoyable to watch. Um, the, the other fact of the matter is that I have seen Citizen Kane many more times than I will ever see Order of the Phoenix. Um, so, you know, my votes with Citizen Kane, who ironically I would not vote for were he a real person. He's a, he's a monster. That's the whole point. It, it's his sled. That's the point of the story. <laughs> I haven't seen Citizen Kane. <laughs> I have a question for you, which is whether or not you have any more uh, pieces of film information you would like to enter into the Witch Please archive, the oral archive, where it will last in perpetuity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do, actually. I think this is a really important... This is actually probably the only reason to talk about business uh, at all in terms mm-hmm. of the making of the Harry Potter movies is that this business model of making movies based on international box office and based on those kinds of things are exactly why more and more movies now are, are a franchises B adaptations and, um, Oh, I had a third one. (laughs) Sorry. And, and see why they kind of play it safe with both of those things. Mm-hmm. So, like, actually, um, the fact that it's an adaptation isn't a coincidence at all, right? It, it's because Harry Potter was already something before any movies existed that they re- thought they, people would go see as a movie, right? I uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I always feel like there's a subtext of the Vancouver housing market argument here. It's not, movies aren't worse now because people in China go to see more movies, Right, it's not like the Chinese dollar is why we get so many franchises that go on forever. That's not uh, what I'm saying, not evaluatively, but um, 
that's why there's increasing numbers of adaptations and franchises and this kind of thing. I mean, that's why there's a movie being made of the new Scamander thing, a trilogy, right? A trilogy. That's, that's why, that's why everything's a trilogy. Everything's a blockbuster. Everything has seven movies in it. Everything just goes on forever and ever and ever Mm -hmm. and ever. Um, yeah. So I, I just thought that was worth pointing out. That's why the movies do that. I, but I guess what I'm saying is there are different reasons why there's seven books than why there's eight movies and then there's going to be 11 movies. I got really excited about how the business of film works and I took all these notes about it, just writing down things about how film business works. And I thought, I just want to go on Witch Please and talk about this. (laughs) It's so interesting. I just think it's so interesting. (laughs) So uh, thanks for bearing with my giddiness as I try to explain ancillary markets and vertical integration. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's really important. Um, I mean, part of the way that we read the books on this podcast is with a focus on the text themselves and a, a certain lack of research, mm-hmm. which tends to take out a lot of the sort of material production side of things, which is ironic considering that Marcel and I are both print culture scholars and that we actually spend most of it. Maybe it's not ironic. Maybe it's the fact of the matter is that that there's something very simple and pleasing about just doing a straight up textual analysis. Whereas I think a rigorous reading is always going to require a consideration of material production. And this is a hobby, not our job. So yeah, so we're focusing on, on that stuff. But when you add the material production back in, everything gets more interesting. And I, I feel like for film based on the, the small amount of film criticism that I have read mostly in theory classes, I feel like it's harder to divide material production from, from film itself than it is like i feel like there's less of a tendency of that than there is in literature partially because texts are better at or have a longer history of eliding their own material production yeah in a way that like when you're looking at a film and talking about techniques you're talking about things that a person is doing with a camera whereas when you talk about a literary technique, you're not thinking about paper or print or yeah. binding. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's really true. I was doing a film degree at the same time as an English degree, and it was very noticeable that film theory is much more bound up in uh, film as a technology and as a business mm-hmm. and as those things. I, I think that's actually probably because film still feels like a technology to us and mm-hmm. books don't, right? We've yeah. naturalized books um, and thus made their materiality, yeah, I, I would say really mm-hmm. quite invisible and it needs to be recuperated. Whereas I would say, um, somewhat ironically, considering that films are actually just light, right? <laughs> that, that they, they actually don't physically exist yeah. anymore yeah. uh yeah yeah i think i think that's very that's very true i think yeah everything i say is very true now <laughs> thank you darling listeners for joining us for episode 10.5 of which please We'll be doing our best to keep the episodes fortnightly, but we also appreciate your past and future patience as we balance this weird passion project with our real lives. Things might get a little little fucked up over Christmas again. We'll see. If you haven't already, you can listen to the rest of our episodes on ohwitchplease.ca or through your podcast app of choice. Special thanks to people who have left us reviews on iTunes. Usernames include The Magic is Real. Here's a thing. One, two, three, three, five, six, seven, nine. Is that like another one of those like cool internet things that I don't get? Like, uh, like that one that Brett and Alex laughed at me about? I don't know. Or is that just that someone wrote their password into the username category? <laughs> I hope so. Green 10 and everyone is entitled. If you've left us a review somewhere else and we don't know, then get in touch. We are super into positive reinforcement. Special thanks to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser, who had to show me how to use the microphone again today because Marcel does all the tech stuff, and I'm terrified of breaking things. And we've got a special treat for you right now. And special thanks to everyone who's been tweeting at us. Karina Soros, The Mirage Child, Caveatster Corum, Renochka, Debekel, Kimalosh 2, Oaken Bookcase, Proletarian Arts, Basil, Debbie Kinsey, 
Nemo's Winter, Our Lady of Cats, Alicia Ard- Ardelian? Ardelian? Sorry. Ravenclaw's Hat, Vivinue, Mrs. Evans Potter, Red or MC1R, Alan Matley, Anne Fion, Meredithering, Radatatam, Trafe Podcast, Mar Shameless, just Trevor Trout Fraser, Emily Hoven, Katerina Hoven, FK Pagan, Smarakuha? Smarakuja? Okay. Surinoth, Dashel, Dazzlesh? Yeah, Dazzlesh. Let's enter the second one in there. You're going to edit this heavily, right? Nope. Daughter of Ben, <laughs> Pewter Wolf 13, Rachel Big Eyes, Mother Fungus, Jerd 5555, Vic Jones, Duchess Cadbury, Sophie Biblio, A.L. Loveday, Short to the Point, Chrissy Pajamas, Kristen Morin, Envy Orden, Lindsay Cedar, <laughs> BKS, Whiteley Rose, Jordan Ruth, Escaletley, Nordsey Blau, Elborgon, now we are all Tom, Casim G H, Aaron Emily Ann, Callie Lim, Queer Mu- Queer Mus Lupin, Terry Lee McGarry, S A S M Arbuthnot, Katie Hasenbank, Keeping Heather, Sarah Janet, Broken Tape Tech, J Butler Ames, Jenna Marinowski, M W Boyce, Matt Domville, Physics Katie, Ali is Unicorn. K. Alex Rowe, Emily K. Compton, Libagen? I think Libagen. Libagen. Eleonora, Plump Pucker, Rach Kale, Khaleesi's and Amazon's podcast, M. Reed's books, Virginia Wolf, Cylon, Cyclone? Cyclone Chloe. Cylon, sorry, Cyclone Chloe. Bookish Spoonie, Indigo Han, Last Nora, and Angry Care Bear. <sighs> Beautifully done, Neil. Oh. <laughs> I broke Neil. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm deeply sorry if I mispronounced anyone's <laughs> names there. I have a new respect for Marcel and Hannah. Wow. It's a lot of work. There's so many wow. of you. I'm not sure what our next episode will bring us listeners. So stay tuned on Twitter for more updates. Also, watch out for announcements about our next live event in January. We're speaking at Nerd Night Edmonton, and tickets will be going on sale at some point in November. But until next time. Later, witches. Witches.